Well, good morning. It is my honor and privilege once more to invite you into the book of Jonah. We are um, beginning chapter 2 in the book of Jonah, so uh, take a moment and begin to search for the book of Jonah in your Bible. The book of Jonah is in the Old Testament, somewhere sandwiched between uh, the book of Obadiah and Micah. Not that that helps anyone at all, but there it is. Um, If you uh, don't have a Bible, then uh, go ahead and use the one that's in the pew ahead of you. We'll be on page 774 and 775 of the Pew Bible today. And if you have to look in the table of contents, like I told you last week, no judgment here, okay? Use the table of contents and find it. All right, so we're just going to pick up where we left off in the book of Jonah, where uh, Jonah, the prophet of God, was suspended in the Mediterranean Sea on tumultuous waters. And we're going to begin reading at the end of chapter 1, and we're going to read all the way down to chapter 2, and then I'm going to ask for the Lord's help, and we're going to get to work. Should be here about 45 minutes or so in this chapter. So if you're already there, let's go ahead and begin reading together. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Lord, that was your word. May you write its eternal truth on our heart. May you give us eyes to see it rightly. And may your word convict, encourage, equip, 
edify and strengthen these your people such that your name would be praised your gospel would be advanced and their lives would be changed do this for your own sake amen And this is the tragedy of the book of Jonah. That a book which is made the means of one of the most sublime revelations of truth in the Old Testament should be known to most for only its connections with a whale. Such was the lament of the Scottish theologian G.A. Smith on this book. And I share his lament. Many of us know the story of Jonah only for its connections to a great fish. And for good reason. Jonah is perhaps the biggest fish tale of them all. The original fish tale, if you will. Much has been said and debated about this fish. And for good reason. If it's a whale or a great fish... If so, what kind of fish? Whatever. While that is an interesting thing to discuss, it ultimately misses the point of the book of Jonah. The fish of Jonah is mentioned only twice. Once when the Lord appoints the fish to swallow Jonah, and again when the Lord tells the fish to vomit Jonah out of its mouth. The fish is not the main feature of the book. It is simply the means for transporting a rebellious prophet from the middle of the Mediterranean Sea to the shore near the, town of Gal- near the town of Nineveh. So at best, the fish is a feature. It's an Uber, and that's all. It is a taxi cab to take Jonah from here to there. That's all the fish is. So don't get hung up on the fish. You may be surprised then to learn the book of Jonah is not about a whale. The book of Jonah is not even about the prophet Jonah. The book of Jonah is about God and his grace. So what's Jonah doing at the end of chapter 1, drowning in the Mediterranean Sea? Quick review. Jonah was a prophet of God, which means that it was his job to seek the Lord, to hear from the Lord, to speak the Lord's words to the Lord's people to give them direction for their life. He was a servant of the Lord, an ambassador of the Lord. In 2 Kings chapter 14, we learn that Jonah prophesied the protection of Israel against their evil enemies to the north, the Assyrians. Which means probably Jonah was a popular fella, probably well-liked. Well, that all changed when the Lord came to Jonah one day and said, go to Nineveh and preach against the people in Nineveh, which is significant because Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It was Israel's greatest enemy, and this was the epicenter of their life, and Jonah was to go there and to preach God's judgment on those people. 
And the Assyrians were a wicked, wicked people, a ruthless, idolatrous people who hated God and were guilty of horrendous crimes against their enemies. And Jonah doesn't want to go and preach to the Ninevites. And the reason Jonah doesn't want to go to preach to the Ninevites, we're told in chapter 4, verse 2, is because he doesn't want to give the Ninevites a chance to repent. Jonah's not afraid of these wicked people. Oh, they're ruthless. Oh, they're evil. But Jonah's not afraid of going there. Jonah doesn't want to go because he knows the God he serves is merciful and compassionate. And what if he tells them God's going to judge them and they repent? So Jonah doesn't want to go. He hates the Ninevites. So he runs. He charters a boat in the opposite direction of Nineveh. It'd be like God calling you to New York and you go to L.A. Opposite direction. Nineveh has 40 days before God will judge them. And Jonah seems to want to make sure that's going to happen. So he's hoping that God will destroy the city of Nineveh. Well, Jonah learns early in chapter 1 that fleeing the presence of the omnipresent is not such an easy task. God sends a storm on the sea and the sailors on the boat panic. And each one of them cry out to their fairy tale gods. While Jonah is asleep in the hall of the boat. So they go down to the, the hall and they get Jonah and they tell him, cry out to your God. Jonah's the only one on the boat who knows the real God. And rather than repenting and calling out to God, Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. This storm is my fault. Throw me into the sea and let me drown. Well, the sailors are reluctant, but they do it anyway. And the storm stops. And the sailors give praise to God. And they get saved on that boat. Jonah, the prophet of God, sinks to the bottom. And the Lord appoints a great fish to swallow him alive. And save his pitiful life. So as we've come now to chapter 2, the narrative stops. All the action and drama and panic of the sailors in a boat tossed by a tumultuous sea fades away. And the narrative becomes chillingly calm, slow contemplative. The author leaves the readers alone with Jonah as he descends to the depths of his watery grave. It's as if we, the readers, are dragged under the water with Jonah and held there, holding our breath, waiting for what might happen next. This chapter is engaged only with this one horrible man. Swallowed by the sea and a giant fish on the brink of death. And we watch with wonder as he encounters the living God. 
who throughout Jonah's rebellion has never left his side. Jonah sinks to the bottom. The seaweed wraps around his head. And moments before he drowns, a giant subterranean taxi picks him up and carries him away. And then here, finally, Jonah prays. Finally. And this is his prayer. Jonah's prayer that we just read is in, a, in the form of a psalm. It reads like a psalm. No doubt revealing the influence of the psalms on the prophet's life and his prayer life. And Jonah's prayer, like so many other Hebrew psalms, follows a chiastic structure, which I've explained to you before. just means that the, that the main point of the psalm is in the middle. Like a hinge. Jonah's psalm follows the structure of a a psalm of thanksgiving. There are 12 of these in the Psalter. A thanksgiving psalm follows a structure. It follows a, a kind of model. It starts with an introductory statement about God appreciating God for rescuing them. That's followed then by a description of the misery that they've been rescued from. From there, the structure goes, a description of the appeal of the, uh, to rescue, and then some indication of the rescue from God itself. And then finally, in the Thanksgiving psalm, there's a testimonial vow where the psalmist will continue to show gratitude towards God for his deliverance. And Jonah's prayer follows this structure exactly. I show you this because I want to draw your attention to the biblicalness of Jonah's prayer. It is poetic. It's filled with biblical references, Bible language, truth, good, solid truth. I mean, how many of the Psalms have you read that begin in the same way? I called to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. I was in the belly of Sheol, the place of the dead, and God reached down and answered me. David himself could have written these words. Jonah describes his tragic situation. And then we come to the verse in the middle, verse 6 which following that chiastic structure is the center point of the psalm. And he says this, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He credits God with his deliverance. He cried out to God. God heard him. God reached into the depth and God saved him. Very biblical. Jonah's prayer even shows that he is, has very solid theological understanding. Look at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's very biblical. That's almost a direct quote to Psalm 31. The last word in verse 8 in the ESV above, is translated steadfast love. 
If you're using an ESV, I think it's grace. Or if you're using the NIV, I think it's grace. Some translations have mercy. It's the Hebrew word chesed, which refers to God's faithful love and mercy. It's an important theological word. And it's related to the word in the New Testament, which we translate as mercy. As in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, which you all probably know. By, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That word mercy is related to the word chesed in verse 8. It's a very theological word, very solid theological statement he's making. What Jonah is saying in verse 8 is that those who look to idols rather than to God, they give up their hope of God's chesed, his grace and mercy, his steadfast love. It's a powerful theological statement, but that's not the most powerful theological statement in Jonah's prayer. The most powerful theological statement comes in verse 9, where Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Many Bible scholars believe that this phrase is the primary message of the book of Jonah. And I agree with them. Salvation is from the Lord. Just think about it. God saves the pagan sailors on the boat. God saves the drowning prophet by a fish. God saves the Ninevites through the preaching of his word. All of this by grace alone, because salvation is from the Lord. No one in any of those circumstances did anything whatsoever to deserve God's grace. God gave it to them freely because salvation comes from the Lord. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And if anything, this book teaches us that the salvation that we have came from God by grace alone. Every man needs saving. Every man is drowning in the guilt of his own sin. And without God's sovereign gift of grace, there is no hope for any of us. Every man will perish, drown in the guilt of his or her own sin. And God becomes our Savior in Christ Jesus by coming into our world, living as we should have lived, dying as we deserve to die, being raised to new life, and gifting to us a free gift, the righteousness that we were incapable of earning on our own. God gifts it to us through his Son. No one said this better than the Apostle Paul when he wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone boast. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Salvation is from the Lord and so for us, you and I, to, cl- to, to claim that we owe, th- that our salvation is owing to something that we've done is a little bit like scooping up water from the ocean into a cup and pouring it back in, saying you filled the ocean. We had nothing to do with it. God did it sovereignly on his own. 
sent his son on his own, but by grace through faith alone. This is the glorious truth. Jonah teaches us. The Lord saves. To God be the glory alone. All of that's true. But. But. If you think. That is what Jonah meant in his prayer. I'm afraid that old prophet has us duped. Jonah's prayer feels so biblical. It feels psalmy. Corey could take these words and write a song and we would sing it on Sunday. But listen carefully. That is not what Jonah meant at all. I have labored over Jonah chapter 2. And I am deeply troubled by this prayer. For all the Bible talk, all the psalmic references, all the God is sovereign language, something is missing, something big is missing. This prayer is deceptive because it feels so biblical. And the reason I think many of us miss it is because we breathe the same air Jonah breathes. It's like when you become accustomed to a particular smell, you can't smell it anymore. We read Jonah 2 and we're accustomed to the language and we miss the rancid smell of his prayer. Look carefully with new eyes at Jonah's prayer. This, my dear Cornerstone, is not the prayer of a repentant man. Nowhere does he reference, nowhere does he own, nowhere does he acknowledge his sin. He doesn't admit to it at all. In fact, you'll learn it's the opposite. The opposite is true. If you missed that, don't feel bad. I missed it too for years. I think there's a reason Why it's so easy to overlook this in Jonah 2. There are three responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three. And most of us only ever consider two. One reception to the gospel, one response to the gospel is reception. You hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, hear what God has done by grace in Christ. You repent of your sin, you turn away from your sin, put your faith in the Lord. You give everything to follow Jesus out of gratitude for what he's done for you. And you live for him forever. That's 
reception. We receive the gospel. That's one response. Most of you know that response. The other response to the gospel is that of rejection. You hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, you think it's nonsense. You don't tell me what to believe, I won't tell you what to believe. We'll go on being nice to people and I'll be just fine. Rejection of the gospel. Those are the two most of us think about, reception and rejection. But friends, there is a third option. It is the worst of all. It's called religion. Religion hears the good news of the gospel and believes in the gospel. Religion even begins to follow God's commandments. And this is what makes it so bad. Religion and reception look the same. Sound the same. They're hardly distinguishable. But there are major, major differences. And they're almost totally invisible. Unless you know what to look for. And I think this is the reason we read Jonah 2 and we miss it. Here are some ways to detect religion in your own heart. With some questions. Are you following Jesus for Jesus' sake or for your own? Are you obeying God to get things or to get God? Are you seeking God to get a ministry or to get a Messiah? Religion views God as a means to an end. Whereas in the gospel, God is an end. Religion tells us, obey God's commandments and you will be accepted by him. Whereas the gospel tells us, you've already been accepted by him. Therefore, obey God's commandments. Religious people feel confident when they're living up to their standards. And they feel like failures when they don't. But gospel people base their confidence on Christ alone. And they understand that at once they are totally sinful and yet totally accepted by God. Religious people are proud. Unsympathetic to others. They walk around with a false self-exalting humility. Whereas gospel people walk around meek, deeply sympathetic toward fellow sinners. And they walk around with Christ-exalting humility. Religious people look to their performance for acceptance. Therefore, they expect things from God. Like a respectable family, obedient children, a good job, a certain quality of life. 
And when they lose any of those things, they're either devastated or furious with God. But gospel people recognize things like family and work and the quality of life. They're not ultimate things. They're good things. And when they lose those things, or rather, when they give those things up, they don't feel threatened. Their position with God doesn't feel threatened, and they certainly don't feel like they got ripped off. As if God were being unfair by taking good things away. Religious people feel that God owes them something. Whereas the gospel teaches God owes us nothing and grace is free. You see, religious, religion is a capitalistic understanding of relationship between God and man. I mean, you get out of God what you put into God. I do this, you do this. I give this, you give this. Obedience, worship, prayer, church attendance, it's an economic exchange. It's a business transaction between you and the divine. And when the outcome is not what we want, we feel like we get ripped off. Religion is all about saving yourself. It's all about control. Religion, therefore, resists God's mission. Refuses to go all in for Jesus because it always wants to hold something back for itself. And then you contrast this with the gospel response, which is salvation by grace through faith on the basis of nothing that we've done and everything that God has done to ransom our wretched souls. And you learn that you belong to God and he can spend your life any way he chooses. Jonah 2 is the prayer of a religious man. It seems so biblical, doesn't it? It reads so much like the Bible. But everything I have just explained to you is evident in Jonah's prayer. Jonah did not obey because he wanted God. He obeyed God because he wanted to get something from God. So to him, God was a means, but not an end. So when God decided, I'm going to take my servant Jonah and I'm going to spend his life on the Ninevites, Jonah's like, oh no, you're not. It's my life. If you're still not convinced, take a look at Jonah again. Jonah chapter 2, you can see it above my head. Three things I want you to see in Jonah's prayer here before we wrap up. Three things. Three elements of his religiousness. The first is this. Jonah is self-centered. He is not God-centered. Jonah is self-centered. He is not God-centered. Direct your attention to the words above me. And listen to Jonah's references only to himself. 
I called out to the Lord. He answered me. I cried. You heard my voice. I am driven out. Yet I will look upon your holy temple. The waters covered me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down. Bars closed around me. You brought up my life. My life was wasting away. I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you. I will sacrifice what I have vowed. I will pay. 25 times in 10 verses, he refers to himself in a prayer of deliverance. Don't you see? Jonah considers himself his own savior. Oh, for sure. He credits God with that salvation. He credits God with his deliverance. But look carefully. God only delivered Jonah in Jonah's mind because he had the wherewithal to cry out. My prayer made this happen. My faith made this happen. Notice also. He keeps on saying, this is my life. This is my life. These things, they're happening to me. Religion is self-centered. It is man-centered. A religious person is always the hero of their own stories. I find it so strange, but even when speaking of God's deliverance, a religious person makes themselves the hero of the story. They minimize God's deliverance and maximize their own. God rewarded my faith. Do yourself a favor. Train your ear to listen for this. In sermon clips, in conversations, who's the hero? Is Jesus being exalted or is the person putting their faith in Jesus being exalted? Train your ear to distinguish between the subject and the object in conversations and in sermons. It's not easy. That's why you have to train your ear for it. That's why it was hard to see it in Jonah's prayer. The second thing you see in Jonah's prayer that shows he's a religious man is that Jonah is self-righteous. He is not God-righteous. Jonah is self-righteous. He's not God-righteous. This leads Jonah to blame God for his own problems. And to blame others for theirs. 
and it blinds him to his own sin. Take a look at verse 3. Here's what Jonah the prophet in the, in, in the depths of the Mediterranean Sea has the gall to say to his God. You cast me into the deep. Your waves, your billows passed over me. Verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Seems to me he's blaming God for his problems. Jonah's making himself out to be a victim. Jonah ran, but God chased. Jonah goes overboard and God goes after him. And from the belly of the fish that saved his life, this guy has the guts to blame God for his rebellion. You drove me away. I had a nice, comfortable life in Israel prophesying to people who liked me. You drove me away. Hold up, homie. I read chapter one. You ran. God didn't chase you. You ran. And he chased after you. And if that's not enough, look at verse eight and nine. Look what he does. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. By the way, this is a reference to the sailors. Those who pay regard to vain idols as pagan idol worshipers. They forsake God's mercy. But not me. I make sacrifices to my God. What I have vowed, I will pay. Commentator Daniel Timmer writes, Jonah has assumed that his relationship with God is healthy, while that of the idol-worshipping sailors is non-existent. This, says Timner, condemns Jonah with delicious irony while reminding us that God has in fact delivered the Gentile sailors in more senses than one. You see, religion looks at others and blames them for their own problems while always playing the victim of their own. This is because religious people are self-righteous. And this is the great danger of religion. It looks to itself for righteousness, for the right standing with God. It looks for its own efforts and works to maintain that standing with God. That is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that right standing with God comes only by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus' offering of his own blood on the cross. And the gift of his righteousness to us. And this happens only when we admit our sin, admit our need, turn from sin, and live for him. No one can make themselves right before God. Despite what religion teaches. The third thing. Jonah looks right, but lacks repentance. Jonah looks right, but he 
lacks repentance. This is a self-centered, self-righteous, unrepentant man in the belly of the fish praying a prayer to his God. And the author of this book wants us to see that. The author of this book wants us to see that Jonah is no hero. Jonah is an anti-hero. And he's also no victim. Jonah like all of us, is the mastermind of his own problems. The great tragedy of Jonah chapter 2 is that it looks right, feels right, sounds right, uses Bible words. It seems that maybe Jonah even feels a little sorry about his condition. No doubt about it, this is not a repentant man. And yet, friends, look what our amazing God does for this unrepentant fool. Verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon Dry land. Could have left him there. Could have drowned him. I would have. But God had mercy. When Jonah ran, God ran faster. When Jonah wanted to drown, God saved him. When Jonah was unrepentant, God gave Jonah more time. Jonah is no hero. He's the anti-hero. God is the hero of this story. And that is what Jonah is all about. God saves by grace alone. God shows grace to pagan sailors, to this rebellious prophet, to these evil Ninevites, and God shows grace to you. There's one reason why you draw breath today, and that's because your God has been gracious to give you that breath. If you're new in church, or new to Christianity. I want to let you in on a little secret. There's two parts to the secret. It's a bit startling, I think. Like a jack-in-the-box kind of startling. And the first part of the secret is the Bible is not a collection of stories about saintly people who do good things and a God who loves them and gives them blessing. The Bible is a collection of stories about sinners who do bad things and the God who loves them and gives them grace anyway. 
There is one hero in this book, and his name is Jesus Christ. But the other part of the secret, young Christian, old Christian, is even more jolting than that. And some new Christians, some old Christians even, they never recover from the scare. And that's this. Church is not a collection of saints who do good things and God loves them and blesses them as a result. No, church is full of sinners who do bad things and God loves them and shows them grace anyway. You see, in a sense, we are all like Jonah. We all sought to be our own savior, control our own ministries and lives. We all got ourselves thrown into the sea of our rebellion. But God sent a great fish after us. Corey, you can come back up and he's going to do one more song. And I want to ask you while we sing to do something. I want you to ask yourself some questions. While we're singing, ask yourselves, who is the hero of my story? Is it me? Is it Jesus? Ask yourself, who is your actual Savior? Is it me? Or is it God? Ask yourself, am I serving God for his sake or for my sake? Is my obedience to God based on getting something from him? Or is it based on gratefulness to him? And then ask, if you are truly serving the Lord Christ, If you are truly serving Jesus alone, for his sake and not your own, then what can he ask of you that you have any right to say this far and no more? What are you holding back? What are you unwilling to do? What are you unwilling to spend? And repent of that. Stand to our feet. Father, expose the Jonah in all of our hearts. Send your Holy Spirit to weed out that wicked religious man show us where we have been blinded to treating you as a means to an end and not an end in itself expose this wickedness in us and bring us to repentance
as we sing in Jesus' name.